This is Chad Harrison, and you're listening to Hope Alive, applying God's word to your daily life. Hi, this is Chad Harrison, and I am the teaching pastor of Lake Community Church and have been serving as a pastor for 25 years. I'm also a practicing attorney. This podcast is designed to help you study God's word and find God's will for your life. I pray in the name of Jesus right now that God would open up his word to you and allow you to see him and to know him and to know his will, that you might glorify him and that you might walk in faith and power each and every day, especially today in Jesus name. Good morning. Welcome to Lake Community Church's morning Bible study. We are, uh, we are in the middle of, uh, the book of Psalms, we're in Psalm 118 this morning. It's the, it's the end of what is known as the Hillel. It's the Psalms that were centered around the Passover and leaving Egypt and the songs they sang regularly during the Passover feast. And these are the last songs that uh, Psalms that uh, come about as a result of that. And this one is the last one uh, of them all. It is also the longest one of them all. It's 28 verses but it 29 verses but it is nothing compared to psalm 119 which we will start next week and psalm 119 it just keeps on going it is 176 verses long 176 verses long can you imagine almost 200 verses long the longest chapter in the bible after yesterday we did the shortest chapter of the bible so we are uh going to going to start with Psalm 118, and it is uh, a praise to God for his everlasting mercy. In fact, it is it is the subject, the words that uh, are used in this psalm are the subject of the subject of some praise songs and some hymns that you've heard and seen before. It is it starts out, oh, give thanks to the Lord for his good, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. That kind of says what it needs to say, I think. It says, uh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His mercy endures forever. His mercy is always at work forever. His mercy endures forever. That means that it is everlasting. Now, there's a difference between eternality and everlasting. Eternality is um, is the de- definition of God's life as far as him living outside of time. Everlasting means from now forever forward. And so his uh, mercy endures everlasting while we're on this earth. There'll be no need for mercy and there'll be, need, be no need for, for him having to give us his once this this world and this age is over because we will be perfect before him and we will we'll be as he is. So being, as, being in that way, his mercies have to endure in this age and the time we live in the place we're at. He says, let Israel now say his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, now that would be the priestly class, say his mercy endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord now say his mercy endures forever. What he's saying is we need to make sure we go through and understand that everyone needs to say it in Israel. The priests need to say it in Israel. And then those who fear the Lord, who may be those outside of Israel, needs to uh, say his mercy endures forever and recognize that God's mercy, God not causing us to have to suffer that which we deserve, endures forever. It is a it is an everlasting uh, promise of God that his mercies will continue on. He said, I called on the Lord in distress. 
And the Lord answered me and sent me in a broad place. Notice, uh, <clears throat> notice that this is about being being delivered out of Egypt. His mercy, his mercies endure forever. He, we find he finds himself in a really, if you read it this way, he says, I called on the Lord in distress, and the Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. What he's saying is, I was in a tight, and God got me out of it. I was in a I was in a difficult situation. And God delivered me. God does that. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And that's a proper perspective. God's perspective is that that he takes care of us and that he walks with us and that and that nothing can overcome us. Well, if, if God's on my side, who can be against me? And that's what this verse says. The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. Notice that there, there is a struggle there between those who help me and those who hate me. The world is always going to hate us. I know we want the world to love us. And I know we even package our churches so that we might be loved by the world or that we might be palatable to the world. But the truth is the truth is that we're not palatable to the world. We're not. We're the smell of death to them. And it is very it's very difficult to be palatable to those who have a totally different worldview than we do. It's it, we can still be full of grace and mercy to them. We can still be uh love to them. To the individual, we can be life changed to them. But the desire to be to be uh loved by a world that by its definition, cannot love us. It's only going to hate us. Is is foolishness? He says it is better to trust in the Lord to, than to put confidence in man. This is almost like, as you read this, it's almost like a proverb. It really is. It is like a teaching at the very end, where the writer is just telling us, "Listen, these are the facts of life. These are how things have worked. We need to focus on who God is and the mercies that He's given us, and not worry about the world." He says, the Lord, he says, it is better to trust in the Lord than put confidence in men. That, that's just a life lesson. That's just a that's just a lesson that we learn as we go through life. It is better to trust in your Lord than put confidence in princes. Notice, we don't put our confidence in man. That's very important for a church because a lot of people in church want to put all their confidence in their pastor. In fact, you'll hear people, my pastor says this. That's great, but what you're saying is my confidence, my understanding, my walk with God is based on what my pastor says. And that's not putting your confidence in God. That's putting your confidence in a man. And in our church, that's a strong disfavor. I want you to know why. I want you to know why the hope that is in you. I want you to know what is going on with God and your walk with him and, and it not to be about me. And it doesn't need to be about any man. It also doesn't need to be about any government. He says here, it is it is better to trust in the Lord than put your confidence in a princess or princesses of the earth, the prince of your or nation. It is better to put your confidence in God than put your confidence in government. Government's always going to be a failure. You do realize that. Government's always going to not work. First of all, every government, even the governments that are um, 
are led by dictators or, or royalty. They all have administrations and they all groups of people that run different organizations. And just the facts and the truth are, is that administrations and organizations like the government operate at far less of the total potential of the, when you get together and you have, scripturally speaking, two or three together, you ought to increase or multiply your abilities and your greatness and the things that go on with you. But anytime you get together a bureaucracy, a group of people in a bureaucracy that has all these rules and all these organization charts and, and, and things like that, it always ends up, you can take a, a group of 100 people, 100 A-plus people and put them in a bureaucracy and they'll operate at B-minus, C-plus uh, levels. They just will. And it doesn't have anything to do with people and doesn't have anything to do with their heart. They can be good, godly people. But you put them in a bureaucracy, and they won't function at the highest level. They'll function at the lowest level because the bureaucracy keeps them from being who they ought to be. It's just the way that things happen. Renee says, Chad said, don't say I said. And I did. That's what I said. I said, don't say I said. Anyway, it's good to have every once in a while look over at the chat and see what's going on. Anyway, we don't put our, our trust in government. He says, all the nations surround me. But in the name of the Lord, I will destroy. This is a kind of a prophecy of Jesus. It is, it's a looking forward that, that even though the nations, and, and by the way, that's going to happen in the Revelation, is the nations of the world are going to rise up and, and they're going to try to attack uh, God. And he's going to destroy them. They surround me. Yes, they surround me. But in the name of the Lord. I will destroy them. And Israel's always been that way, by the way. Israel's always been being surrounded by nations who wanted them out and wanted them dead. That was that was far before the Romans, and it's been going on ever since they became a nation in the 1940 in 1948 here in the world. They've always been surrounded by those who want to destroy them. They surround me like bees. They were quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. By the way, Israel's fought several wars since 1948, all of them where they were far outnumbered, where they were far outgunned, where they were, there really was no hope because of the war. And yet they prevailed and not only prevailed, they prevailed uh, mightily. And each and every one of those conflicts, even the ones that uh, seemed like they were losing, they've always won. And God's promises to them is all, have always been true. It's not all the nations that surround them that destroy them. In the past, God has chosen a nation to discipline them. And uh, he did that with Babylon. He did that with the Assyrians. Uh, he did that with the Romans. And he continues to do that, but he chooses in the way he, he disciplines his people. He does not allow the world to discipline us. And by the way, that's important. God's discipline is from him and it's not from the world. He says, they surround me like bees where they are quenched like a fire of thorns. For in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song and he has become my salvation. That's just a clear indication of God's deliverance, even though we're surrounded by the world. He says, the voice of rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous, meaning those who are righteous, and we have a righteousness not born of works, but by faith. Those who are righteous by faith, they rejoice in God's sozo, his salvation, his, his sanctification, his deliverance. We, we rejoice in that. And uh, we rejoice in our homes in that. And and that that should be true of you. That should really be true of you. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord 
does valiant. Notice he says that twice. The right hand of the Lord, it does valiantly. It is valorous. It, 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 it brings about great honor. And he says, he says that hand is exalted. It's powerful. It's above all things. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he's not given me over to death. Notice, he talks about the discipline of God. God does discipline us. His discipline is true. His discipline is always at work in our lives. He is always chastening us, but that chastening is for our betterment, is for our blessing, is for our walk with him. The world does not chasten us. The world seeks to destroy us. He said, Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them, and I will praise the Lord. He's asking God to open up uh, the opportunity to trust him. That's the gates of righteousness. And he says, I'm going to go through them, and I'm going to praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. It's the gate of faith. He's talking about faith there. He says, I will praise you. I will praise you, for you have answered me. You have become my salvation. The stone which the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And there is the second verse in this psalm that is really well known in the church. First verse is, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his mercy endures forever. That's verse one. And there, here in verse 22, we found the stone which the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone. That's quoted in the New Testament, and it's speaking of Jesus Christ. He is the rejected stone. Why is he rejected? Why is Jesus rejected in the Gospels? Why did they, they choose to throw him away? They choose to throw him away because he has chosen a way that's not the world's way. It's not to be a, a, a king in Israel. He's chosen to be king of kings. And so in order to do that, he's got to pay the price. He's got to do the sacrifice. And because of that sacrifice, he becomes the cornerstone, the main stone, the first stone, the stone that is set up and everything is built around. It, it's because Jesus did not choose the ways of the world. He, the, he chose the ways of his father in heaven who, who sent him for that purpose. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. And it, it is marvelous. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. There's number three. There's number three. That's another one you need to underline as you're going through the book of Psalms. Uh, it's a well-known one. Today is the day. This is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. <clears throat> one of my most favorite verses. Today is the day God gave me, and I'm going to rejoice and enjoy it. No matter the troubles or difficulties ahead, no matter the uh, work and toil that I know is ahead of me, I am going to rejoice in the day that God has given me today. He says, save now, I pray, O Lord. <clears throat> o Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Send now his goodness. He said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have uh, blessed you from the house of the Lord. He's saying, Boy, boy, it's good. It's good for if you really go through that gates of righteousness, if you really, if you really place your hope in Jesus, the stone the builders have rejected, if you really say that today is the day that the Lord has made, then you, you're going to see his goodness and his best and his prosperity. You're going to see that. He said, because you're coming, you're going out into the world in the name of the Lord. He says, you know, the Great Commission 
tells us as we go out, we are to make disciples. We can't do that unless we're coming through the gates of thanksgiving and righteousness, unless we're uh, placing our hope not in the world, not in the worldly systems, but in the, in the stone the builders rejected, Jesus Christ. And we can't do that unless we rejoice in the opportunity that is today. We can't do that. So he says, God is the Lord, and he has given us life. Bind the sacrifice with corn, with cords to the horns of the altar. Notice what he's saying. That we're going to bind ourselves. We're, he, what, is it, what is the sacrifice on the horns of the altar today? It's us. It's us. We're the sacrifice. We're going to tie ourselves. He says, bind ourselves to the altar of sacrifice. We're willing to give ourselves on the horns of the altar. We want to make that sacrifice. That's why we have that first altar call in the service anyway. I know it's to fill up the uh, basket so that the church's finance can be taken care of, but that's not the primary sacrifice that God requires. It's not the giving of our money, although He, we need to give our money. The reason we need to give our money is because where our treasure is, there our heart is also. And so if, if there's no treasure there, then our heart's not there either. And we need that. But what God asks is that we place our own, our whole lives on the altar and that we tie the, our, ourselves to the altar of, of his sacrifice so that our lives have purpose and meaning. He said, God is the Lord and he's given us life. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God. I will exalt you. That's some good stuff right there. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. That's very personal. It's very direct. It's very forceful. He says, you're my God. I'm going to praise you. I will exalt you. That's what my life is for, and that is what the day is for, is to praise you and to exalt you. He said, oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his mercies endure forever. Uh, verse 29 and verse 1 are the same. They are the famous verses from this, this psalm, along with the stone the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. And this is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad. Powerful psalm, if you think about it. It has four verses that are well-known, well-used, regularly about the uh, Christian church and about our music and words that are used regularly. As you go today, I pray that the Lord will bless you and keep you, that he'll make his face to shine upon you, and that he will give you hope and peace today in Jesus' name.